If you have a Bible, open it with me to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew there in front of you. You'll find this either on page 393 or 411, depending on which printing of uh, the pew Bible you find in front of you. So I'm beginning a series um, in the Psalms, so we'll spend the summer in the Psalms. Uh, I've selected 12 Psalms out of the 150 uh, to preach over the summer. You'll be encouraged to know, only 12. But that means we could do summer psalms, 12 of them uh, every summer for the next 12 years, and we still wouldn't finish. So uh, it's rich and full of uh, lots of wonderful things. But psalms, as you know, is essentially an ancient songbook um, that was used not only in Jewish worship, but also in the church from the earliest years of the church and down through the centuries. And one of the interesting and um, uh, uh, profitable, I guess, characteristics of the Psalms is the broad range of content you find there and the broad range of emotions that are expressed in them. So just about however a person could feel at any given time, um, there's expression given to that somewhere in the Psalms. And so you have um, different categories of Psalms. About a third of them are laments. So those saying, oh God, how long will you wait? Deliver me from this desperate situation I'm in. About a third of the Psalms are that. Which to me is just a provocative thought to think that the, the people of God, a third of what they would sing is laments. Um, so if you spend a lot of time lamenting, then you would be encouraged to know uh, you're in good company with the saints. But laments, you've got hymns of pure praise, you've got songs of thanksgiving, songs of confidence, royal or kingship psalms, and then wisdom psalms. And what I've tried to do is, is in this dozen or these dozen psalms, is to kind of give a taste of that range. Not, not all of it, um, obviously, but our, we'll have kind of a sampling of that. But, but we, like any church, ought to recover the use of the Psalms in personal and corporate worship, both as part of our prayer and as a part of our singing. And so this, ser- this series will hopefully whet our appetites um, in that regard and, and sort of deepen our pre- appreciation for the rich inspiration and the real spiritual help that we find in the Psalms. And so I'm beginning today with Psalm 27 and a message I've titled, What to Do When You're Afraid. And so let's look there together now at Psalm 27. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand with uh, just a special attentiveness to what the Lord has to say through his word. Psalm 27, beginning of verse 1, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forget, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you for the true and living word that we find in the scriptures, the expectation we have every time we open them that you have something to say in them, Lord, by your spirit, that you would give light and understanding and minister that truth and life to each one as we have need. God, we confess that we sometimes deafen our ear to the truth, Lord, that the only things we can hear out of the scriptures are the things we already believe that we think somebody else needs to hear. God, would you penetrate hardened hearts and deafened ears to hear what you have to say to us today for our good, for your glory. And so we ask that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. Lord, as always, would you move me out of the way and use my mouth as an instrument to speak to your people in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as you maybe see in uh, your Bible, as you're reading along, this psalm is ascribed to David, as nearly half of them are. Nothing is said in the title explicitly about the circumstances in which he was writing. And there are some uh, ascriptions, some titles of the psalms that that say what the circumstances were. In this case, nothing in the title says that. We do know, however, that David spent years of his life on the run and in hiding from Saul, who wanted to kill him. And based on what's described here, it seems likely that he wrote either during that time or about that time in his life when there were enemies, armies encamped around him and so forth, that he's, he's in that chapter of his life that he's writing about. Um, so whether Saul or someone else, there are people pursuing David and literally trying to kill him. And that's the fear or the source of fear that he is battling against. But all of us have some kind of fear to battle, right? And if it's not now, it's soon. And if it's not big, uh, it's small, but it's there. It's such a, a pervasively real part of being human. And we want to 
consider from the scripture sort of how to battle that fear. But before we do that, let's understand a little bit more clearly even the nature of fear and what it is that we're battling when we fight that battle. The the dictionary uh, would define fear as something like an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that some something or someone is likely to be painful, dangerous, or threatening. Okay? An unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that something or someone is likely uh, to be painful, dangerous, or threatening. And so that means, if we kind of tease that out a little bit, uh, it means that we can, we can make two further observations about fear that are important to us in knowing how to battle it. But the first thing is that while fear itself is a real emotion, uh, all fear, in a sense, is based on an imagined experience. Okay, f- the, the fear, it's a real feeling. It's based on an imagined experience because it hasn't happened yet. Now, you might know there's a high probability it's going to happen. And perhaps the higher probability and the higher expectation of pain associated with it, the more fearful you feel. But it's an imagined experience because it hasn't happened yet. Let me give you maybe an example of of, uh, what I'm talking about there. Many, many people develop from the earliest stage a fear of going to the doctor because the first trip, in fact, they don't even remember the first trip. Um, one of the first trips they made to the doctor, they got shots, right? Injections, and they hurt. And they associate the doctor with pain, and so they don't want to go back to the doctor. Maybe some of you still feel that way as adults. But never, never mind the fact that in reality, most doctor visits don't involve injections, Right? And that not all injections are actually painful. But, but see, it's, we imagine uh, that it's going to be that way. We imagine the, the experience is going to involve the injection, then we imagine the experience is going to be painful. The fear is real. It's based on an imagined experience. That's important to understand when we're talking about battling it. The second thing that we would say is that, uh, that fear, really partly for that reason, Fear is essentially misplaced confidence. Fundamentally, fear is misplaced confidence because it's confidence that something bad is going to happen, is going to be painful. And so so battling fear, overcoming fear, is essentially a task of redirecting our confidence from this imagined painful experience uh, to the God who either will deliver us out of that or will be with us in it, redirecting our confidence. And so, as I said, all of us contend with one fear or another, one sort of fear or another. It may be the financial situation Uh, for you is bad and it doesn't look like it's going to get any better and if it doesn't get better um, you don't even want to imagine the the consequences of that it may be a medical situation that's bad and appears to be getting worse it may be for for many you're afraid your kids are going to make bad decisions you're probably right by the way about that but um It's almost certain, as a matter of fact, now that I think about it. 
but you're afraid they're going to make bad decisions. You're afraid they're going to fall in with the wrong crowd. Um, you're afraid they're not going to get into the best college. You're afraid they're going to be mistreated and hurt by other people. Uh, my generation of parents has really been controlled by fear uh, for our kids. I'm not speaking universally about every parent, you know, in my generation, but that has kind of characterized the way we've parented. And then, of course, there is fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Few of us have cause to fear physical harm by people the way David did. There are some people, by the way, who do live with that kind of fear. They live in an abusive home or they live in a dangerous neighborhood or maybe travel to dangerous countries. There is real fear of real physical harm. Most of us um, don't contend with that, but we, but we do fear people in a different respect. So we fear disapproval. Uh, what, what are people going to think of me? We fear their mistreatment, intimidation, ridicule. We fear what's going to happen when we fail to meet their expectations or what we perceive their expectations to be. There's an online uh, writer who writes at the Desiring God blog. His name is John Bloom. And he said this about fear of man said, the person to whom we ascribe the most authority to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it is the person we fear the most because it's the person whose approval we want the most. The person to whom we ascribe the most authority to define who we are, what we're worth, what we should do, and how we should do it is the person we fear the most because it's the person whose approval we want the most. Now, uh, th this is actually uh, worth something sort of putting in your back pocket and take it out later and meditate on this because this, this issue for many people is developed early in life and it runs deep in us. This even unconscious sense of the need for the approval of other people and the expectation you're not going to get it. The assumption that others disapprove of you because of the experiences you've had in the past. And it can be from an overbearing parent or grandparent early in life, a coach or a teacher. Um, it, could, it could have been from um, the kids in middle school who mocked and made fun of you or whatever, you were already uh, overly self-aware and they validated all of your concerns about yourself or whatever. And there's stuff like that that can run deep in somebody and affect the way they interact with people and what their expectations or assumptions are about other people and their affection for them for years down the road. It's fear of man. It's fear of man because it is ascribing to somebody else other than God the authority to, to, to determine who you are and what you're worth. And it can control our thoughts and priorities. It can cause us to lose sleep, even make us physically ill. 
And so we need strategies for what to do when we're afraid. We need strategies for how do we redirect our confidence from our expectation about these painful circumstances that are imagined, from this, our expectations about the, 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 the disapproval that we're receiving from people whose opinion we ought not to even care about, but we do for reasons we don't even understand. How do we redirect our confidence from there onto God? Well, I want to draw out from Psalm 27 here four steps to prayer that drives fear away. And we'll go quickly here, but the first is declare what is true about God. I said, I said that this is prayer that drives fear away. So how do we pray? How do we pray against fear? And the first one is to declare what's true about God. Very often when it comes to a matter of fear, our, we begin our prayer with God help. God deliver me out of this situation. And really, in many respects, probably in our prayer life in general, we need to start at a different place. We need to start at you, O Lord. You're great, you're good, you're, mad, you're majestic, you are whatever. But, but especially when it comes to dealing with fear, we need to begin by declaring what's true about God. Look at verse 1 and what David says. The Lord is my light. He, he is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. And not just he is light and salvation and a stronghold, but what? He is my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. In the face of fear, you, you've got to believe not only that the Lord is God, but that he is your God. That he is your God. That you are on his side. That you have been picked to be on his team, so to speak. Probably most of us had this experience growing up where in maybe an elementary school and PE class, you were going to play, you know, basketball or soccer or whatever the game, you know, was going to be. And uh, so, the, so the PE teacher had two people pick teams, right? And so you, many of us also had the experience that um, somewhere along the way, you were in class with somebody who was just hands down the better athlete than everybody else in the class. So that if you got picked to be on his team, you're going to be on the winning team. Right? I, I, I went to school with a kid who in middle school, he was like sixth grade. He was like 6'4", 250, 260, something like that. <laughs> Giant guy. Let me tell you, if you were on his team in tug of war, you were taking home the trophy. So you just have to, you know, just don't hold on too tight. You might get rope burn, you know. <laughs> don't get, don't get uh, hit by uh, some flying middle schooler coming over from the other side when he leans his way back. But if you get picked on that team, you know you're on the winning team. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be heavy or whatever. You're just on the winning team. Well, that's maybe a bit of a crude analogy, but to say to put in perspective for us, he is my God. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. I am on the winning team. There is none who compares to him. There is none who compares to him. And if you genuinely trust in Christ, you can know that, that you're on the winning side and that he cares for you. You know, there are many people who they believe all those things are true about God and even believe that it's true 
toward other people, they have a hard time believing it's true for them personally. And that's part of why you need to make that the starting point in your prayer to declare what's true about him as your God, as your light and salvation. Declare what's true about God. Number two, make your relationship with God your singular desire. Verse four says, one thing have I asked of the Lord and that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. One thing, one thing matters. Now, you know, there are other things that occupied David's time and attention. He was anointed as king. He was going to sit on the throne as king. But the one thing that, the, the one thing that mattered was that he would dwell with the most high God. And so once again, whether, whether he delivers me from my troubles or whether he just goes with me through them, I will be with him. And that one thing is all that matters. Maybe some of you have been in a place where you could testify to that. And you, and you, you, you couldn't say maybe that you live there all the time, but you know what that feels like to know the circumstances are probably not going to change my perspective on the circumstances have because I know he is with me and I'm with him and that's all that matters. Now listen, we don't get to that place just by saying it. You do not just click your heels together three times and all of a sudden the only thing that matters to you is that you dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It doesn't work that way. We have to sort of point our hearts in that direction and then seek after him. But as, as we develop a more intimate, personal relationship with him, every other concern will fade in its importance in my mind and heart. To declare what's true about God uh, make your relationship with him your singular desire. Number three, assert your confidence in God. So we've said what's true about God and now assert your confidence. Now remember what I'm talking about here is you personally and me personally in our prayers saying these things. That this, this is our starting point rather than God help me. We're beginning with declarations about him and now assertions about our confidence in him. And having begun with the statement that God is his light and salvation and stronghold, notice all the ways that David expresses confidence in God. In fact, Psalm 27 would, I think, by most be considered a, a, a psalm of confidence. There's also elements of lament here in it. But verse 1, he says, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? My heart shall not fear, verse 3. I will be confident. Verse 5, he will hide me in his shelter. I am confident. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me in his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Verse 6, my head will be lifted up above all my enemies. Verse 10, he will take me in even when my parents have forsaken me. I know he will not. I'm confident of it. In verse 13, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, that while I'm living on this earth, I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. I'm confident of it. It is just assertions of confidence based on who I've already declared God to be but then the benefit that's conferred upon me because of that and the expectation I have that begins to shift 
as it's redirected my confidence from my anticipation of bad, painful circumstances to trust in God who will either deliver me from them or be there with me through them. Assert your confidence in God. And number four, make an honest plea to God for help. Underline the word honest. Make an honest plea to God for help. If you, if you look at the way David prays in this, what he does make petition for um, in verses 7 through 9 and then 11 and 12, you get real honesty. Look there, beginning in verse 7 again with me. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do seek. Hide not your face from me. But could you hear the heart cry in that? Lord, you said, seek your face. I am seeking your face. Lord, where's your face? Don't hide your face from me, Lord. Don't turn your servant away in anger. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. Honest, honest prayer. And you know what? There are many of us as Christians who won't allow ourselves to pray this way because there's something that seems improper about it. Either, either we, we, we think it's irreverent to talk to God that way, right? As if God is looking down from heaven, wagging his finger saying, hey, you watch your tone with me, mister. Or, or they think it, it expresses a lack of faith. And so I don't even want to say it out loud. If there's any doubt in me or any concern in me, I don't even want to say it out loud. But see, God, God already knows how you're feeling before there's even a word on your lips. Behold, he knows it all together. It's not like, you're not going to dress yourself up and fool him into thinking you're more pious than you really are. And that's good news, isn't it? So just say it. Just say it with all the passion that's behind it. Be honest before God. Listen, God is mighty to save and he delights to be savior and deliverer of his people. Do you understand that? That God wants to be the hero? That, that he, he is the savior of his people. And he will also be the judge of his enemies. But it delights him to save and deliver. Cry out to him and make your need heard to him with an honest plea for help. And so let me share then three quickly, just three approaches to incorporating the Psalms in your prayer because, because one of the ways you can do all of what I've just described is to pray the Psalms. I was talking with uh, uh, staff this week about this and shared with somebody else recently there was a movie uh, where uh, it's, a, it's about a, a, a writer who's kind of gone into seclusion or whatever and he meets another young writer and one of the things he encourages him with is the, the, the young kid's got writer's block at one point and he gives him one of his own pieces that he's written and says start with this. Sometimes it's helpful to start with somebody else's words when you don't know what to say. And then he begins writing on his own. Sometimes when you're praying and you don't have words of your own, sometimes it's helpful to begin with somebody else's words. 
And the Psalms are as good as anything. You could just pray the Psalms, but three ways, uh, practical ways that you can incorporate that, three resources even that you can use. One I've mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, it's called Matthew Henry's Method of Prayer. Matthew Henry's Method of Prayer. You can find it online at www.matthewhenry.org. Matthew Henry's Method of Prayer. And it's just chains of scripture prayers of adoration, confession, petition, thanksgiving, intercession, and then concluding prayers. Just scripture prayers. They give you a springboard into praying uh, for what else specifically you may want to pray about. The second one would be the Book of Common Prayer. It's an Anglican or Episcopalian document, some of, or book some of you are familiar with, uh, first written back in the 1600s. Um, there's a lot of it there that wouldn't be particularly helpful to you, um, perhaps, because it's sort of a, a worship guide for um, the, you know, the, the Episcopal, Episcopal Church kind of in general. But one of the things it includes are daily daily prayers. There's morning, noon, evening. Uh, there's devotions for families. There's sort of a concluding prayer for the evening for families. And it includes psalms in all of those. So it's just structured in a way that may be helpful. If you don't know where to start, you don't know what exactly to pray. It's, again, starting with somebody else's word, so to speak, and praying from there. That might be a helpful resource. That is also available online. If you just Google that, you'll find an online copy of it. And then the, the, the third resource, as I already kind of said, is just the Psalms. Okay, so just, just pray the Psalms. And as part of your prayer routine, as often as you pray... Incorporate the Psalms into your praying. And, and you can do this. You can read the Psalms through in a month um, if you kind of want to approach that uh, by, by reading five of them a day. And most of them are short. It averages 16 verses per Psalm, in case you wanted to know that. Um, but uh, you, you, can, you can read one a day. And so one of the ways you can go about that is on the first day of the month, uh, read Psalm 1, and then you skip... 30, okay, so 1, 31, 61, 91, 121. And it kind of hops you through sort of the range of, of the books of Psalms. Skip 30 each time till you've read five of them. And then you do 2, 32, 62, 92, 122. If you're not good at math, have a calculator beside you. But that, again, that's just one approach to just giving you sort of a smattering of the Psalms and just, and just pray them. And here's what I'd say. Find a, a place private enough that you can pray aloud. That you can pray aloud, even if it's just a whisper. And hear yourself praying the Psalms. Because those declarations about what's true about God and those, those assertions of your confidence in God, you need to hear it coming out of your own mouth, especially when you're presently dealing with fear. And then at the amen, conclude the way David did and wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage, Wait for the Lord, and then in your next prayer time, whether that be later in the afternoon, in the evening, or the next morning, you get on your knees again, and you declare what's true about God, and you express your desire for Him above all else. You assert your confidence in Him, and then you make your honest plea and persist in that 
um, even though you don't immediately feel any different, even though you don't immediately feel any less afraid than you did before, um, if you continue in that pattern and you get closer to him, as I said, even if the circumstances don't change, even if the likelihood of the pain of it doesn't change, your concern about that will change because you'll be more and more assured that the God most high is with you through it, come what may. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you, God, that this is true, that you are light and salvation and a stronghold to those who trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that even some here today who maybe don't know whether that is true of them, they really don't, they're not sure they even have, have placed saving faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that they'd be drawn to you to make that certain in their own hearts, Lord. That Jesus died to pay the penalty for the sins of man, a penalty that man deserved to pay that only God was able to pay. Lord, would you lead them into the assurance that you are their light and their salvation. And Lord, I pray that for many, many, many people, you would draw us into a closer, more intimate relationship with you where you become the only thing we really care about that abiding with you is really the only thing that matters. That everything then in life would fall into its proper perspective. Lord, elevate yourself in our own hearts to be the only one who can define who we are and what we are worth the only one whose approval matters to us. And Lord, I do pray for people who are faced with, with great fears even right now. And it's a real feeling and it may be high probability that they are going to experience the thing that they're afraid they're going to experience. Lord, would you be gracious to them Draw them specifically close to you. Speak to them by your spirit, Lord. Give them evidence that your hand is upon them, that you are with them, and that they are secure in you. Be to them a stronghold, Lord. Hide them, hide them in your presence from the enemy. Lord, would you just be free to minister this truth to each one of us as you will because we want to dwell with you all the days of our life. Make us yours. In Jesus' name, amen.